Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Healthy soils are key to productive and profitable farm operations as they can increase nutrient availability, improve water infiltration, reduce soil erosion, and much more. But they can also help lessen the negative effects some farming practices have on the environment. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we chat with independent agriculture consultant Bill Stengel of Madison, Wisconsin, who joins us to discuss some of the ways farmers can minimize environmental impacts by focusing on developing healthy soils. Listen in to hear about how different cropping systems are able to store carbon below ground, how soil type affects nutrient and water management plans, lessons learned from installing on-farm phosphorus reduction systems, the challenges of dialing in nutrient use efficiency, why matching the crop to the soil matters, and much more. Today I'm here with Bill Stengel. Bill, you're the owner of Soil Solutions Consulting in Wisconsin. Would you just share a little bit about your background, how long you've been doing this, and what got you into it, and why are you focusing on the consulting side? Okay, I've been operating as an independent crop consultant since either 1985 or 86. I've got into it right out of college, kind of a way that I would not recommend anyone to do it. I thought, hey, I'm going to hang out my shingle. Uh, it was the first job I had out of college. And well, and you have a soil science degree? That's right. Okay. Yeah. I got my bachelor's degree in soil science from UW-Madison. Then I went on and went into uh, graduate school for a period of time. Don't have much to show for it, but uh, I dug in kind of deep on soil fertility okay. in that realm. Then hit the ground running and decided to go into the world of consulting. Here I am today, still doing it. <laughs> yeah. What was your first action when you when you decided to hang that shingle? Well, actually, I was in Illinois at the time. Oh. And it was uh, oh, west of Springfield and north of St. Louis, oh. down in the hill country between the Mississippi and Illinois rivers. Mm. And it was a very different environment. And I just happened to have some projects that kind of were looking for someone to do a little bit of work and hooked up with Farm Bureau in that case. At that time, there were all these small labs all over the state in Illinois. In this county, Farm Bureau operated a very small lab. And so a soil testing lab? Yes. Okay. And I provided them some technical guidance on operations. And then we started up a soil testing and sampling program that we offered to farmers in the community. And that's how I got going and just started doing soil fertility work there. And not long after that, I moved up into Wisconsin and hooked up with another crop consultant. He was a fantastic mentor. He's, he's helped a lot of people over the years. I'll put in a plug for his name. It's Dave Cole. He's retired. He's helped a lot of people in Wisconsin get going in the world of crop consulting. And from there, I 
just uh, expanded the business and operated out of uh, Lake Mills for many years. And now I operate out of Madison and focus with on working with farmers in the counties of South Central Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a great place and the diversity of Wisconsin agriculture is something that has always intrigued me and I find it to be challenging as well as interesting. So we do have the that intermix of livestock and cash grain operations, which is a unique dynamic in in the Midwest. You know, in Illinois, it's you're one or the other, at least where I was. And I grew up in that system. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm up in Kewanee County. And I knew how that system functioned and dysfunctioned <laughs> and uh, thought, hey, I can uh, help people in refining their management and uh, come up with solutions to uh, places that they recognize they need help and I was willing to help them. So. Okay. And did you actually grow up on a farm? Yeah. You did? I did. A dairy farm? Yep. Oh. Yep. But you didn't want to be a dairy farmer. Well, actually, I did. Oh, okay. I did. I, I grew up in a family of uh, I had eight other siblings and have an older brother who was in partnership with my dad. And when I got out of school, you know, that was the midst of the farm depression of the 80s. Sure. And uh, it was a tough time to keep the farm afloat, much less take on another partner. another partner and... The opportunity just wasn't there for at the right time. And if I had to make a second choice, this would be it. Well, I have certainly heard good things about you from the farmers in the area, so I know your work is very much appreciated. <laughs> well, that's good to know. So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is water quality. We were on a Zoom call together a few weeks ago, and the topic was actually soil carbon. But I think you were saying, and correct me if I get this wrong, uh, but I think you were saying that soil carbon is really difficult to measure, but water quality is well understood and also a very good indicator of the soil health factors that so many farmers are concerned about. Yeah, the past winter, this has been the winter of carbon. Uh, you know, in, in farm circles, there's been so much uh, coverage and uh, discussion about what's happening with indigo, what's happening with nori, what's happening with the ecosystems consortium. And my conclusion is there's not much happening. <laughs> We've had a, a series of demonstrations of carbon marketing programs that are scattered across the landscape today. Mm -hmm. And they are nothing more than demonstrations for the most part. We don't have a true carbon market to that farmers can really go in and say, hey, I'm gonna sign up and I understand this system and I know what the deliverables are and what I have to do. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. I've seen a lot of proposals, but I haven't seen anything that I would hook my wagon to. Okay. And part of the challenge with developing that system is where we are in the science. We have a pretty good handle on how to quantify carbon in a soil profile. Mm -hmm. What we don't have a very good handle on is predicting across multiple environments how we 
take carbon from the atmosphere and stick it into the root zone. We know the principles of it. Yeah. We just have a hard time predicting where it's going to work and where it hasn't worked as predicted. So we're on the early side of the science. You know, there's a long-term study at Arlington uh, that was published middle of the last decade, had accumulated oh, approximately 20 years of cropping systems data and long and short was, hey, we aren't sequestering much carbon with the practices of this trial, other than we've got a couple that are maintaining to say we're socking it away. The data was pretty scant there. And that was over a 20-year period, you said. Yeah. 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 What were the practices that were it was being a, measured? It was a cropping systems trial, and oh, okay. it had three cash grain systems. One was a continuous corn Another was a corn-soybean rotation with no-till. Uh, then the third cash grain was a corn-soybean-wheat in an organic simulated structure. Mm. None of those were storing carbon. Then there were three forage-based systems that were also part of that trial. This is a great trial, by the way. A lot of good data there. A lot of good people have worked on it over the decades. The forage-based systems were, one was called the green gold program, which was a alfalfa corn rotation, looking at intense alfalfa management. Uh, you seed it, direct seeding, two years of alfalfa forage in the established years, then one year of corn. You have manure in that system. Uh, it's a very robust, highly productive system. The next forage system was a, again, an organic-based system just a three-year rotation, oats and alfalfa seeded as forage, grown another year after that as forage, and then one year of corn. That also had manure in the system. And the third forage-based system, a rotational grazing system that uh, had actual animals on site, and they're moving through all these small paddocks, rotated around, and uh, that was the only system that actually had a slight increase in soil carbon in the top meter of profile. Out of all of those, all six systems, that was the only one that actually had a slight increase. And it, and it wasn't any, statistically, it wasn't different than no increase, but, you know, numerically there was a slight bump. You know, that was done on a prairie soil, Plano series, uh, Molisol, which is rich in carbon to start with, and we really couldn't measure much of a change in that. Jump down into Iowa, uh, I know of two trials that have contradictory results to that on long-term studies. You know, the data's out there, it's mixed, is the best you can say right now. Just to dig into this a little bit, um, obviously we do have a couple of farmers out there who have been paid for some carbon credits. I think they've both gone through the Nori system. And yeah. I'm assuming since these credits have been sold, mm -hmm. that uh, somebody is saying that there is carbon being sequestered. So I'm just wondering, what do you think is the basis for that? Well, I think I know specifically within the Nori system, they're using the Comet model. Yeah. And that's, which was developed out at Colorado State. My understanding, it's not only the carbon sequestration that's happening in terms of putting it in the soil. It's a combination of practices as well. Looking at the whole system and saying, okay, if we've reduced tillage and reduced fuel use, there's a carbon credit that we can pull into this equation. 
that's part of it. And But there is, I know of one farm out east, I believe it was in Maryland. It was the first one that Nori yeah. had sold. Trey Hill, right. Yeah. You know, they had numerous years of practices. They could reach back and take past credits for what they'd been doing. Mm-hmm. They were also... They're also in the Chesapeake Bay region, which they have been very active in terms of incorporating cover crops into their cropping systems. In general, when you look at the eastern coastal plain soils, they're low organic matter to start with. Stage is set. Okay, if you make practice changes, odds are pretty good in a low organic matter system like that, you're gonna be able to measure it and quantify it quite well. Not a one-size-fits-all equation that we're gonna be able to take this out across the countryside. I look at Wisconsin and the farm that we're sitting on right now, uh, what we do in terms of quantification of our soil carbon measurements up on this drumlin, this hill right behind us versus the bottom of that drumlin where we have a very high organic matter soil to start with. I see us struggling with the differences in our output when we make those measurements just on a, on the same farm. Just a little bit that I know about soil science and soil morphology. The changes we have between texture, parent material, and development of that soil over the last 10,000 years or whatever it's been here, they're very different processes at work. And that's showing up in the uh, carbon deposition within those soils. So I don't have a, a good idea on how we're going to account for that variability. We can model it. The next question becomes, how good is the model at right. that? And, and right now, we don't have the answer to that. That's where the soil science community is actively working right now. Mm-hmm. And we might have the cart before the horse here a little bit. With the carbon markets. Yeah. yeah. We've had a few players in the marketplace right now who have had difficulty delivering on their promises. A bit of a let's go out and make something happen attitude rather than let's have a system in place that can really address the questions that people have. That is created degree of skepticism within the farm community, really hook their wagon to anybody at this point. I think there are some very good players out there right now. Uh, I think the Ecosystem Services Consortium, what I see, I see them being effective in that they're saying, hey, there's more to it than carbon. Let's talk about water quality. Let's talk about what other environmental benefits can we bring to the table so that able to package this stuff together. That's one approach. And you've got the strict carbon approach and it's real. It's something that I support in terms of, hey, we've got a increased level of CO2 in the atmosphere. You know, the numbers don't lie. Well over 400 parts per million, uh, which is a lot different from when I was a freshman in college. The next question becomes, how do you, how do you reduce that number? And it's by reducing emissions and sequestration. You know, I, there's a third way. I'm all ears, but those are the, the only two I'm aware of today. How we get there, I don't know. The frustration that I see is there's somewhat of a disconnect in terms of what those carbon credits are worth. 
to the end buyer versus what's being paid at the farm level. Because we're in the early stages of that, there's a lot, a lot of stuff being consumed in, in the middle. How much of that is profiteering and how much of it is actual development work that varies by company. I know there's one company out there that is known to be uh, have some of the highest paid executives in the carbon market business today. And, you know, that doesn't bode well for what's happening with the slice out of the middle. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So um, when we bring that back to the water quality issue, is water quality sort of a leading indicator of soil health? It can be. Every farmer who has operated in the last couple hundred years, you know, understands the value of organic matter and intrinsic connection between soil organic matter and soil quality, which right off the bat will infer and imply soil health and crop productivity. That's just a given. So it's easy to make the connection. Mm -hmm. Now, when we jump to water quality, there are numerous factors or that will directly, we can directly measure their impacts on water quality. But when we look at water quality itself, a highly functional soil will reduce the negative impacts we have with our agricultural practices. You know, if, if we take a step back and say, does agriculture impact water quality? The answer is yes. The question is to what degree? Our challenge is how can we minimize our impacts? Simple as that. And we do agree runoff and soil erosion are major contributors to degrading water quality. So the first step is to address those up front. And as we use the discussion of soil health, we are simply promoting the practices that by default will address both of those right off the bat. And I think the discussions we're having today in soil health are a logical extension of where we've been with the reduced tillage and no tillage campaigns that we've had all through my career. I'm surprised and and pleased with the effectiveness that cover crops has had in facilitating experimentation and transition for so many farmers out there today. You know, and as you've encountered and I've encountered people up and down the road who say, hey, I'm no-tilling now. I used to be a full-blown rip-it-up-and-dig-it-up guy and like big tractors and I like to make them work. It's fun, you know. I like it too. But uh, a lot of those guys did have experience with no-till or uh, something similar to it through their careers, but something made them go back. And I think what we've uncorked here with uh, cover crops and the soil health discussion, the focus has changed. And we've got a tool that actually works really well for that transition. I've promoted no-till since the first day I started doing consulting. And we'd have to prepare people to slug it out for a few years till we got over the hump. Well, what I'm seeing with cover crops in this equation, we're not slugging it out anymore. We're getting over the hump much more rapidly. And that transition and the improved equipment that we have out there, people are able to make systems work where we struggled over the decades to uh, make it work fast enough for people to 
hang on and keep going at it. And do you think it's the biology that the cover crops are bringing that's making that transition so much easier? Yeah, I, I think that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, what we have happening in that root zone and the ability to maintain and improve soil structure and function mm -hmm. is very evident. You know, you've been in the field and seen people pull up the roots and do all that. It's real, it's tangible, and people get it once you start mm -hmm. digging around. That opens the door for us to capture some of the services in terms of reducing nutrient loss when we're dealing with our practices of fertilization and nutrient utilization. And speaking of that, what are your thoughts on nutrient use when you're working in a no-till and cover crop situation? Is there an opportunity for people to reduce the amount of nutrients they use when they're in the system, or is that just not as much of an issue? There are situations where with cover crops, we can reduce nutrient use, specifically if we're bringing legumes into the a system as a nitrogen fixer, mm -hmm. we're actually able to accumulate enough biomass that we can say, hey, I've got, if I've got two tons of biomass and it's 20% protein, I can figure out how many pounds of nitrogen is sitting there. Mm -hmm. And depending on what the carbon nitrogen ratio is, I can tell you whether or not it's going to be available to that next season's crop. That's pretty cut and dried. As we get into some, as we go south and you look at cover crops being utilized in the off season, the opportunity that presents to grow, have living covers from November all winter, mm -hmm. you might slow down a little bit in January and February, but you know, it's probably green year round. Mm -hmm. It's a very different environment. We're up here, if we've got two feet of snow, it's not quite the same, but we're able to capitalize on the soil health aspect of it and the nutrient side of it, uh, just with a rye cover crop or something like that. The utility I see there is we're able to keep nitrogen in the root zone, or we're not losing as much of it to groundwater or tile drainage. Mm -hmm. Tangible nitrogen recovery and retention function is very robust and that works this far north and much farther north and the other part of it is you know what we do here is not trying to pursue the exact same eco services in wisconsin where we get you know 35 inches of rain a year we don't have the same concerns that they do in the prairie provinces southern canada or the northern great plains you know their loss periods are quite different from what ours are. You know, to apply the same principles in Fargo, North, North Dakota that we do in uh, Jefferson, Wisconsin, some of them apply, but what we're trying to do for water quality, we're still concerned about nitrate, we're still concerned about phosphorus, but how they're delivered are very, they're very different delivery mechanisms throughout the calendar year. A common theme that we both have is that spring, winter melt, that runoff period. After that, there's very little similar in terms of where those loss mechanisms are really uh, driving water quality. Mm -hmm. So we have to be cognizant of that. If we get water quality issues under control, 
does the soil carbon piece come along with it? That's a good question. We like to think so, you know, uh, but I think in some environments it will, in others it may not. And I, and I say that based on the diversity we have in soil environments. What is a healthy soil? Part of that is what is, is dependent on what the use of that soil is. Is a healthy soil for growing potatoes in the central sands the same as a healthy soil growing rhubarb in my backyard? What makes a, a healthy soil is, is a, a very subjective discussion, I would say. That's kind of that's getting down into the soil science geekiness. We'll get back to Bill Stengel in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Now let's get back to my conversation with Bill Stengel. Well, I, I was just watching a presentation by a, by a soil scientist who was talking about how heterogeneous soil is, right? Yeah. So you can have uh, a sample from two different fields and they're very different. Mm -hmm. and you can have two samples from uh, you know three feet apart and they're very different. And you can yeah. even have two different samples from the same basically the same sample, yeah. and they're very different. Right. That makes it all very challenging, it yeah. seems. The way that I would kind of twist that question would be, our intent should be to utilize the soil to its best ability for the purpose that we've chosen to apply to it. Sometimes that will require nutrient additions, and it may be in large quantities. And, and a classic example of that would be not to pick on the central sands of Wisconsin, but you know, without irrigation, it's a very low production environment. We add water, now what becomes limiting is basically management and nutrient retention because of how coarse the soils are. How I address the issue there, the corn phase of the rotation is different from what I'll do on a plano in Dodge County. We might have the same resource concern with nitrates getting into groundwater. We use different tools for both of those environments. Mm. That's that's our challenge. We we tend to want to have a simple, easy button in this equation and just tell me what I've got to do and I'll do it. And the answer might not be the answer you want to hear in that case. And then our next question is how do we implement the practices that are required to protect that resource in that setting? So to just go back to those two different soil types, Lano and the Central Sands, and how you would address the, the same goal different ways. Can you just talk about that a little bit more? Okay, right off the bat, it's important to understand what the loss mechanism is. In one case, we're dealing with a highly permeable soil. Plainfield series up in the Central Sands is a coarse textured soil very low organic matter. It can rain in the morning, it can be back in the field in the afternoon. Uh, okay. it's, that's how permeable it is. Our first course of management there in terms of applying nitrogen is to 
put a little bit on frequently. We can do that same method of nitrogen application on a Plano soil, on the prairie soils in Dodge County. But economically, it's, it's not gonna fly. We're, we're still managing nitrate loss to, the, to groundwater. Mm -hmm. But uh, that loss process is, we've got much more storage in this Plano soil. We can pay attention to what our soil contribution is to that nitrogen demand of the crop. And that's our tough nut to crack in that system, mm -hmm. is predicting how much nitrogen is mineralizing out of the organic matter. And that varies dramatically from year to year. We're up in the central sands, it's less than 1% organic matter. We're working on the Plano, it's three to 4% organic matter. And that organic end contribution is very different in those systems. You basically ignore it up in the sands and you pay attention to it down here. That's where our effort needs to, would differ dramatically. What's the testing that you do to figure out how the nitrogen is mineralizing? So that's kind of the holy grail of okay. nitrogen management. Okay. It's mm -hmm. like, how do we better predict soil nitrogen mineralization? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it is a messy dynamic system. It varies year to year and it, and it varies dramatically within the same field. So that's our, that's our challenge. And, and we have the dilemma of everyone recognizes nitrogen deficiency. Mm -hmm. There's a penalty there. There is no penalty to excess nitrogen to the corn crop. Mm -hmm. It'll take it up, it's happy. And if it's not retained, it's vulnerable to loss. So how I deal with it with my client base is we, we just really focus on nitrogen use efficiency. We are messing around with, on a regular basis, various technologies that can detect nitrogen sufficiency on the go in the plant to say, hey, we know it's deficient here, let's bump it up. And that's had varying degrees of success. We can do soil tests, give us an indicator of soil's ability to contribute end to the crop. But probably the easiest thing out there is to do leave a zero nitrogen strip. And uh -huh. now you can pretty much say, okay, we took up X pounds of nitrogen in this above ground corn crop and we didn't apply anything. Where did that come from? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it came from mineralized end, from organic matter. And our challenge is that might be 50 pounds one year and it might be 150 pounds the next. Mm -hmm. And the soil fertility community understands that. Mm -hmm. Many in the farming community understand it. Very few can really wrap their heads around it to say, how can we manage this variability in a tighter manner? That's our challenge. That's where we've got to dial it in and figure it out. I had a conversation yesterday with a co-op agronomist and a client of mine. We were sitting down and the agronomist was telling me, well, we were talking about population, varying populations across the field with the corn, with the planter. His comment was, hey, uh, what I think is more important is that we vary nitrogen across the field. And especially if we're increasing populations, you know, and he used the analogy, if I've got three kids, I buy X amount of groceries. If I've got six kids, 
I gotta buy more groceries. And that's kind of where we are with corn fertilization. Uh -huh. The mentality is if you've got more, you need more. But the science doesn't support that very well. Because of this variability that we have across any field environment with nitrogen mineralization. He, he took that to the next level and simply said, hey, where we've got the higher population down on the good ground, we better bump nitrogen. And the data I've got from my trials doesn't support that. And it's not unique to me. Uh, soil fertility, nitrogen study community out there has a lot of data that shows there's a very poor relationship between expected corn yield and rate of nitrogen applied. You know, you get out on the extremes, yeah, there's really good correlation, but there's it's really noisy in the middle. We've got to keep tightening the screws on that one. Otherwise, we're not going to fix the problems we've got with nitrate losses. I mean, and do you have a sense of where we're going to find an answer or, or not necessarily yet? I don't think there is one answer. What we are doing with soil health and improving soil function is helping us dive deeper into the biological communities that are impacting that root soil interface. We know there's a lot of action with bacteria and fungi that are happening right there. Right. It's, it's, we've always known that. Uh, we've got the chemistry down pretty good. Where, where the frontier is right now is that little root hair space where bacteria and fungi are hanging out and big old commune of soil plant and microbes it's a pretty hopping place and right. we, we're, we're late to the party they've been doing it for a while and yeah. we've been standing on the side watching now we're diving in in the science community a bit figure it out one of the most interesting things i read sometime in the last six months it was there's this common perception that the soil has everything in it for plants to grow but that is not actually the case and the plants do a lot of work to basically feed the biology in the soil and create an environment in which it can thrive. Yeah. And I had never thought of it that way before. Yeah, that, that's so true. You know, think of it. We've got a handful of crops that we're taking all over the world. Grow here. And then the next step is, okay, how do we make it grow? And oftentimes the soil does not have what it takes to grow what we want to grow. So we add something. That's the nature of agriculture. Look at something as simple as cranberries. Mm -hmm. You know, Cranberries evolved in a really pretty nasty, tough environment for when you look at other plants, you know, there aren't a lot of plants that can tolerate a pH of five or less. We pull it out, we pull cranberries, plunk it out in the middle of an alfalfa field where we have a pH of seven, they are not going to thrive. Uh. As simple as that. Uh -huh. Beautiful soil, productive as all get out. Cranberries are not going to like it. Uh -huh. So, you know, it, it, a soil can provide everything that a plant will need. You just better be talking, what plants are you talking about? Uh -huh. You know, that's, it becomes important there. We obviously can grow plants all over the globe that plant and soil are paired. And if we're going to mess with that pair, we better bring something else to the party. I know that you work on some water quality projects with farmers in the area. And I just would, was wondering if you would share some of the experiences that you've had. What sort of improvements have you seen? On the water quality side, a lot of the focus that we've been working with is 
dissolved reactive phosphorus mm -hmm. and trying to reduce what's moving off edge of field. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a tough nut to crack because of the, the quantities that we're talking about in this case, are they are agronomically insignificant. Mm -hmm. uh, the amount of dissolved phosphorus that we're moving off on a per acre basis are in the pounds per acre range of less than five in most cases. If you've got, if you're losing 10 pounds of phosphorus in particulate and dissolved phosphorus, you're kind of, you're an outlier. You're on the high end. Uh, it's, and that's not a big portion of the landscape. Most of the time we're dealing with less than five pounds per acre. By comparison, a uh, corn crop is going to receive 60 to 75 pounds of P2O5 is approximately 44% of that is actual phosphorus. You know, do the math. We're putting on 20 to 30 pounds of phosphorus for the most part, actual P. So, you know, for losing three pounds, it's 10% of it. You know, we don't have the mechanisms to really tweak that from a fertility management standpoint. The rate per acre isn't going to have that big of an impact. It all boils down to what are we doing to reduce that runoff quantity? And then what are the mechanisms where we deliver it to a water body itself? And that's where I've gotten involved with some of our phosphorus reduction systems. We've got a case with Charlie Hammer and Nancy Cavazanjian, who farm up by Beaver Dam. We have a site where they did a tile system upgrade and uh, we got involved with Arizona State University and took a little information from another Wisconsin project doing something similar to this, where we brought waste product, a byproduct of the iron industry out of Gary, Indiana, iron blast furnace slag, brought it in, made a system where we basically go down to the tile level, run tile water through this slag. It will retain, remove phosphorus from, from the uh, tile water. We've got this thing in the ground for, we started installing it just over almost a year ago now. Got our first our first whack at installation in and we were having problems from the get-go. Oh. Within days of installation, we could see we had problems with the material that we were using wasn't graded properly and we, we just had too many fines in it and the whole thing was blocking up on us. Oh. We, were, we were impeding tile flow. Came back in and redid it last fall, uh, got some different media and lo and behold, ran water through it and we are reducing the phosphorus content in that tile water. Works. The problem is we had to scale it down considerably because it was a proof of concept. The design team that we started out with on the whole project didn't go outside their circle of expertise to kind of tap into the known science out there in terms of what to do and what not to do. Uh, so we've got a proof of concept that's reducing phosphorus. Next step is, hey, how do we modify the system so that we can get more water through it. And the other lesson that came out of it, we better make darn sure we're putting it in the right place. If it's well positioned, treating water that is truly elevated in dissolved phosphorus, it does a bang up job. It can remove 
phosphorus quantities that are similar to what you might get out of a small sewage treatment plant in a small community. And that is oftentimes discharging directly into a water body. So it's, it's a real reduction, quantifiable pounds that are not going into a water body. But if you don't have elevated phosphorus levels, you're spending money on something that's not really retaining a lot of phosphorus. So you gotta pick your location. Mm -hmm. So that's our next phase. Okay. Let's, let's really define where we are right now. We put in multiple sampling points on this tile system now. Our next step is to sample those. And we do know the variability of phosphorus across this farm and where that intersection is with high testing soil and tile lines running through it. Okay. Do we need to redirect these? lines through the system. That, that's our next step. And the other part that we're dealing with on that, we do know we've got a nitrogen load coming through the system. And every tile system in Wisconsin has got a nitrogen load coming through it. Mm -hmm. The question is, how big is that load? And what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Right now, we don't do a damn thing about it. And it is an opportunity for us to put in a bioreactor or a, uh, some other treatment mechanism in place to reduce that load. The bioreactor systems, are, you know, it's not new. They've been around for over a decade now. They're very effective. They're very simple to operate. The challenge might be in siting them. You can't just plunk it anywhere. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, they're an effective mechanism for reducing nitrogen in tile water. Mm -hmm. Our first step in that whole process, though, is making sure we're doing all we can to improve nitrogen use efficiency. And then the second step would be, can we plant a cover crop to hold it for the next crop? And the third step would be doing a bioreactor or something like this to treat any nitrogen that does get through the system. Can you explain no. how the bioreactor works? Okay. The bioreactor is, you're, you're basically making a, a huge chamber, mm -hmm. which is loaded with wood chips, which is a carbon source for the denitrifying bacteria okay. that are going to convert nitrate to N2 gas is what your objective is. Uh. So it's an anaerobic process. So you've got to make it big enough so you have enough retention time so that water is moving through slow enough so the bacteria can do its job. That time frame is, uh, I'd have to go back and look, but you know, it's, it's, it's hours that you need for retention. You've got to do that dance, having enough capacity to make it worth treating. Mm -hmm. You're going to treat enough nitrate and then you also have to have bypass mechanisms for when flow is too high, you just bypass it and go. The phosphorus treatment systems are different. It's, it's, a, it's a chemical reaction in that case. Mm -hmm. So running the water through the slag itself, the reaction is mostly instantaneous. Mm -hmm. you, you have to have enough capacity so that as you spend the the sites that are available for that chemical reaction, mm -hmm. you have to have reserve capacity as it 
as it ages, oh. put it that way. So okay. you build it big enough so you don't have to change the medium mm -hmm. too often. And you simply have to maintain the pore space and things like that so you can move the quantity of water through it so you're not impeding the tile drainage system. You know, I, I think an awareness part that I think our farm community would be helpful to them in addressing the larger picture of hypoxia in the Gulf. Mm. You know, I, I said earlier, this amount of phosphorus that we're losing on a per acre basis is insignificant from an agronomic standpoint, but it is huge in its totality. The only way that we're going to wrap our heads around that and, and reduce the load that's passing through New Orleans right now mm -hmm. out into the Gulf is to collectively do what we can on our own little quarter section mm -hmm. or whatever that might be mm -hmm. to reduce my contribution. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not going to fix it by putting the screws on tighter at the sewage treatment plant. You know, we, we just have a load that we are contributing from agriculture, and we in agriculture are, are the only ones positioned to address that load that's moving from the field to the water body. You know, I've never seen the awareness on soil resource protection and water quality that we have today. Okay. We, are, we are in a different space today than we were through my entire career. Okay. Uh, and, and that's a really good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, for many years, the discussion was simply, you know, what about what's happening at, in town? You know, what about that golf course mm -hmm. putting on fertilizer? What about all that runoff from lawns? Well, yeah, we can talk about that, but I think the, that conversation has died down and the focus is now on what are we gonna do? Mm -hmm. And there are more and more people having that discussion. And that's a nice place to be because we are then poised to move forward. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not sitting here throwing stones and worrying about what's happening with the Des Moines Waterworks and mm -hmm. having those debates. We're saying, this is what we're doing mm -hmm. in the upper Rock River Basin. and lead rather than follow. And that pride that comes with it is, you can see that with the farmers who are who are engaged. Yes. They take pride in what they're pulling off. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to Madison, Wisconsin Ag Consultant, Bill Stangle, for that conversation about how healthy soils can mitigate some of the environmental impacts of farming. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.